Are you a follower of Jesus Christ who's done being quiet? Are you ready to tell the world whose you are, totally, fearlessly, and unapologetically? And are you ready to smash that imaginary wall that supposedly divides your career and faith life? Welcome to the C-Suite for Christ podcast, where we talk about living as a disciple of Christ in the world of work. Before we get to the content we have in store for you today, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Imagine a financial institution with competitive rates and low fees so you can support churches, ministries, and causes that are close to your heart. A place where your faith and finances can grow together as you seek to serve God and support yourself and your loved ones. It's called Christian Community Credit Union. Here, you're joining a family who shares your Christian values. Here, you can serve God and support yourself and your loved ones. Here, you can get the right financial solutions to help you live and give more abundantly. But can't you just find financial services somewhere else? Well, sure. But what other bank can be your faith-based partner who genuinely cares about a mission bigger than all of us? What other bank seeks to honor God with every single transaction? What other bank can guarantee your money goes directly to kingdom purposes? Christian Community Credit Union is a Christian faith-based, not-for-profit credit union driven by the purpose of serving Christ's followers to live and give more abundantly. To learn more about this world-class financial organization, please visit www.mycccu.com slash c-suite. Again, that's www.mycccu.com slash c-suite. I once asked a business owner who was about to sell his $400 million company that 20 years earlier was a $15 million company, how much he attributed his company's success to being in a CEO roundtable. His answer was, I attribute my company's growth to initiatives undertaken, which were all brought to the CEO roundtable group. That's what having a group of like-minded Christian executives can do for you. That's what being a member of a Nehemiah group can do for you. To learn more about how Nehemiah Groups can help you grow your company and change your life, please visit FuelingSales.com and click on the Nehemiah Group tab. Thank you. Well, hey there, everybody. Paul M. Newberger, the founder of C-Suite for Christ, coming at you here. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the C-Suite for Christ podcast. I know you're not hurting for things to do. I know there's a lot of confusion in the world today. There's a lot of noise in the world today. There's a lot of stuff being thrown at you every single day. And the fact that you prioritize this podcast is not lost on me. I love you for it. I appreciate you for it. And I just want to make sure that after every episode of the podcast, you're going back, looking at the last 35, 45, 60 minutes and say, you know what? That was 45 minutes well spent. I'm glad I listened to that. That is our goal. We take that very seriously. And I promise I'm going to do my very best to make sure that you're feeling that way after this episode. Just one thing I just want to put in your ear 
here, and yes, that rhymed. I'm here all night, folks. Try the veal. Is I just want you to know, and you hear this a lot with respect to our slogan, See Sweet for Christ. It is our stated mission to cover the world in Christ. That's not just a bumper sticker. That's not just something that you slap onto a t-shirt and sell it for $2.99. No, that is our firm foundation upon which we stand in this ministry. That is all rooted in the Great Commission. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his followers that were left behind to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Not if they felt like it, not if they had anything better to do, not if it was safe for them to do so. He said, if you're not comfortable, get comfortable. If you don't have time, make time. If it's not safe for you, well, try your best anyway. It's called the Great Commission, not the Great Recommendation, not the Great Suggestion. And I just want to encourage you that even though society has changed over the last 2,000 years, even though acceptable norms have changed over the last 2,000 years, God has not changed. Jesus has not changed. The Great Commission has not changed. Did you honor the Great Commission today? Did you talk about Jesus today? Did you plant seeds with respect to the Christian faith today? And if the answer is no, here's your chance. Share this podcast with somebody. Make a post about it on social media. Send an email to a handful of people saying, hey, this was a pretty good episode. You might want to listen to it. You got those little ellipses on the platform that you're using, be it Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. You can actually text the link to this episode to a bunch of people. Just doing that honors the Great Commission. Today is done. Now we'll focus on tomorrow. That's why this podcast exists. Believe me, I need something else to do. Like I need a punch in the schnoz. I really don't. But this is my way to help you honor the Great Commission. The other thing is, too, now we want to be deserving of this. Don't get me wrong. But if you like this bold, unapologetically Christian content, would you do us a favor? Would you please prayerfully consider giving us a five-star review? You know, a lot of these programs, again, Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, whatever, they want to promote the really, really good shows. They want to promote the shows that the audience really seems to like. A bunch of five-star reviews are going to get these platforms to go, yo, there's something going on with the C-Suite for Christ podcast. We better let other people get access to this as well. That is a way to honor the Great Commission, plus to incentivize it. Now, this is just for the month of April. You need to do this by April 30th at 5 p.m. CST. If you give us a five-star review on the platform of your choice, take a screenshot and send it to me. You can either do it on LinkedIn, Paul M. Newberger. You can send it to me via email, pnewberger at csuiteforchrist.com. You will be entered into a drawing to get two free VIP tickets. That means you get to go backstage at the Covering the World in Christ celebration on March 7th, 2024, and meet our keynote speaker, the one, the only, Tim Tebow. So again, if, if being commanded to follow the Great Commission weren't enough, we're going to incentivize you. It takes two seconds to give us a five-star review. Again, assuming that we're worthy of it, take a screenshot of it, send it to me via LinkedIn, send it to me via email. Again, P. Newberger at csuiteforchrist.com. And you're entered just like that into two free tickets to meet Tim Tebow. The winner will be announced on 
May 1st. Here's a little thought for you today. What if Christianity in this country were totally outlawed? Just like that, you go to bed one night, Christianity is an accepted religion in this country. You wake up the next morning on Facebook or Instagram or the morning newspaper, you see bold letters prominently declaring that by decree, Christianity in the United States of America or in whatever country you're listening to this podcast in, and we've got almost 60 of you, which is, boy, praise God for that. Christianity is completely and totally outlawed, meaning if you're a practicing Christian, you can be jailed for that. So let's assume a neighbor, a friend, a co-worker, probably not a friend, this would be weird, but let's just say it's a neighbor, a co-worker, somebody in the community says, you know, in light of Christianity being outlawed, I got to tell you, this person, a.k.a. you, I believe is a Christian. I'm going to call the cops. The cops show up. You get hauled into the station. You get accused of being a Christian. You have your day in court. If Christianity in the United States or whatever country you're listening to the C-Suite for Christ podcast in became outlawed and you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I pray that is a convicting question for you here today. Now, before you get all bent out of shape and say, Paul, this is a stupid example that would never happen. This is just one of those hypothetical situations. Come on, boy. Just look at the deterioration of society just over the past two years, five years, 10 years. Look at how bad things have gotten from a moral perspective, an ethical perspective, a spiritual perspective. I think if we were to look at where we are as a society today, 10 years ago, we wouldn't recognize this country. Don't think it couldn't happen. We are just one or two generations away from losing Christianity in this country or the country that you're in. I don't even need to know what country you're in to know that we're just a generation or two away from losing Christianity. This has a realistic chance of happening. This isn't me being, you know, tinfoil conspiracy theory person or, you know, just stocking up on wax beans in my basement with about 50 shotguns saying, come on, feds, take away my Christianity. No, no, no. It's this the, the downward slope that we're on as a, as a society is extremely alarming. But plus, all you got to do is look back over the course of history to see what happens when a certain politician, a certain political party, a certain societal mob no longer feels that people different than them are welcome in their society, welcome in their country. This could happen on a macro level. This can also happen in a micro capacity. If, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you for sure are familiar with the Apostle Peter. Jesus called Peter the rock upon which he was going to build his church. And during Peter's life, especially while Jesus was still with us, 
in his human capacity, Peter was one of the staunchest defenders of Jesus out there. Peter was his right-hand person. Peter had this zeal about him, this passion about him, always trying to defend Christ, always trying to look out for his best interests. Even somebody who was a staunch defender of Jesus like Peter was, denied Jesus three times right before Jesus's crucifixion. Now, when you when Peter learned that Jesus was calling the shot, basically, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me. All you got to do is look at scripture to see that Peter was apoplectic at that thought. Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, Peter replied, Jesus, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. The very next verse, Matthew chapter 26, verse 34, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Think about your mindset when I was talking about how Christianity in this country, your country, could be outlawed overnight. Paul, that'll never happen. Paul, I'm 100% confident that'll never happen. Paul, this is a stupid hypothetical argument that has no way of ever coming true. You were probably very set in that belief. So was Peter. Peter said, Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. Jesus, I'm not going anywhere. Jesus, the entire world can fall away from you. I never will. And guess what happened? Peter, even for that brief period of time, fell away from Jesus Christ. You can be as firm in your conviction that something is or is not going to happen until it happens. Now, one of the things that I that Peter did is Peter denied Jesus three times via a denial of commission. Basically, he flat out said, I don't know Jesus. Now, I'm not going to be so bold as to say you've ever denied Jesus by commission. Now, maybe when you were learning about your faith, maybe when you were relatively new in this faith journey, I don't believe in God, God's a hoax, whatever. And again, until you're a believer, a lot of us have been there. A lot of us have said that. But once you become a believer, very few times, I think, have we ever denied Jesus by commission. Now, maybe if there's a huge tragedy or whatever in your life in a weaker moment, God, I hate you, I don't believe in you, whatever. But very few of us have ever denied Jesus by commission. But all of us, all of us, myself included, at some point have denied Jesus by omission. The denial of Jesus by commission are the things that you say. The denial of Jesus by omission are the things you don't say. The conversations you don't start. The social media posts you don't make. The defense of your faith you don't give. The times where maybe you're in a workplace and, ah, I don't want to end up in human resources, so I'm just not going to say anything. We all, every single day, deny Jesus by omission, again, myself included, some of us just much more than others. And I hate to tell you, but if we're commanded to follow the Great Commission, a denial of Jesus by commission and a denial of Jesus by omission, there's no discernible difference. A denial is a denial. 
So let's go back to this example that I was talking about a minute ago where assuming in our country Christianity is outlawed. I'm not trying to be, you know, poly pessimistic here, but I firmly believe that if Christianity in this country were outlawed, just about every single one of us would avoid jail time. Now we could be thinking, oh crap, it would suck if Christianity in this country were outlawed, but you probably don't have to worry a whole lot about going to jail. Now, this isn't me trying to be rude. It's not me trying to be curt. It's not me trying to be condescending. It's just me speaking truth. And the way the reason I say that, it's not because you don't believe. It's just because you're so gosh darn quiet about it. If we go back to, is there enough evidence to convict? I think for the vast majority of Christians all over the world, no, there would not be enough evidence to convict because we're not talking about our faith a lot, because we're not bringing up Jesus in conversations a lot, because we're not talking to others about scripture a lot. Sure, we're we're praying in the privacy of our home. Sure, we're looking at our daily devotionals and reading scripture a little bit in our bedrooms or at our kitchen tables. That's all good because Jesus wants an intimate relationship with you. Jesus wants you to look at him as a friend, to call upon him, to, to make sure that there's no daylight between you and Christ. That is all good. I'm not discounting that or saying that that's not important. It is. But equally important, if not more so, when you look at the deterioration of society, we also need to take that into the world. We need to be the light in a dark world. We need to honor the Great Commission. As Jesus had said to Peter and some of the other disciples as well, you need to be a fisher of men. How are we going to bring people to Christ if they don't know about Christ? And how are they going to know about Christ unless we're talking about Christ? And that is what worries me. That is what bothers me. Because again, the secular forces in society today are not being quiet. They are not treading lightly. And accordingly, for us Christians, the walls are starting to close in. Life is getting very difficult for us as believers because our quiet nature, the, 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 reason, the reason these walls are closing in, the reason so many people are falling away from their faith, the reason that Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the planet primarily is because we just have been too quiet for too long. It's crazy to think that we're in this spot. I mean, you can almost scratch your head, look around and say, how the heck did we get here? I mean, Christianity, when you think about what we believe, when you think about what we value, when you think about what we hold close to our heart. Ours is a religion of love, of forgiveness, of patience. Yet we're labeled as intolerant, racist bigots. And again, to go back to what I was saying here, I again, 
I'm not trying to say that life is easy, but if you really break it down to its common denominator, it's not that complicated. Life is a battle between good and evil. That's it. When you wake up, it's not, well, today's a Tuesday or today is April 11th. No, that's that's not at all what it is. When you wake up, when your feet hit the floor, the battle begins. Today is not a Tuesday. Today is not April, June, whatever it is. No, no, no. Today is a battle between good and evil. Good is the light. Evil is the darkness. You cannot have light and darkness together at the same time. This is common sense. When it's nighttime and you want to go to bed, you flip the light off. The room is bathed in darkness. 30 minutes later, you need to take a bio pit stop. You don't want to bang your shin on the the nightstand, so you turn on the light to see where you're going. All of a sudden, the, the room is completely lit up. It's completely illuminated. Where there's light... There's no darkness. Where there's darkness, there's no light. This is pretty easy, basic stuff. My five-year-old daughter, Regan, would be able to tell you this. Yet we so often forget this. When you don't have light, you have darkness. Our quiet nature has taken the light out of the workplace because we're not talking about Christ. Our quiet nature has taken the light out of the community because we're not talking about Christ. It's taken the light out of government, out of public institutions, because we're not talking about the light. So now the school systems are darker. The government offices are darker. The workplaces are darker. The community that we live and play in is darker because it is devoid of light. And if you don't have light, Something else goes to fill the void, and the only other thing is darkness. This is why you see society deteriorating, because there's no light. You're not providing it. I'm not providing it. Our fellow brothers and sisters are not providing it. So the world just keeps getting darker and darker and darker. And as the world gets darker and darker, we run the risk of losing Christianity all throughout the world. And I got some statistics to back this up. This is going to be horribly depressing. It's my prayer you didn't need a big meal prior to listening to this episode of the C-Suite for Christ podcast because you might throw it all up. Now, these statistics that I'm about to quote, these come from Gallup polling. Gallup is one of the most prominent polling organizations on the planet. I would say they are the gold standard when it comes to politics, when it comes to societal statistics, whatever it is. So the numbers that I'm quoting, the most recent statistics that I have that Gallup has put out are from the year 2020. So just a little more than three years ago, where we're not talking about generations ago. We're talking about three years ago. So this first statistic, this is church membership among U.S. adults. Now, this is all the United States of America, okay? So if you're listening in one of the nearly 60 countries where we have listeners, This is our country, not yours. Church membership among U.S. adults. So this number peaked in about 1947. You were looking at about 76%. So in about 1947, 76% 
of U.S. adults belong to a church. Now, just as recently as the year 2000, which again is just two decades ago, that number was 70%. So over the course of what, nearly 50 years, a little more than 50 years, you just saw a 6% drop, a 6% drop in about 50 years. That's only like one percentage point a decade, a little more than that. So the year 2000, that's just about a year and a half before the 9-11 attack. So again, we're not talking about the George Washington era. We're not talking about, you know, the Civil War era. We're talking about just 20 years ago, it was 70%. Again, only about six percentage points down from what it was in the late 1940s. Gallup did this survey. Again, the most recent statistics available are in 2020. The percent of U.S. adults that belong to a church in 2020 is 47%. So from the late 1940s to 2000, again, just a little more than 50 years, you saw a six percentage point decrease next to nothing. Rounding error, probably. But now you go from 2000 to 2020, it has decreased 33%. Six percentage points in five decades 33 percentage points in two decades, and that number is still falling. I can't prove it, but I guarantee you the number is less than 47% in the three years since Gallup did this survey. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Well, okay, well, those are the people that go to church. I mean, you look at the Catholic church and the sex scandal, you look at what's going on with the you know, Presbyterian church or the Methodist church with, you know, their acceptance of gay marriage and all the splits that are going on. Fine. Organized religion. That ain't where it's at. Get it. Understand. I don't want to go to a pew with a bunch of broken sinners or, you know, the leadership that doesn't abide by what I might be thinking. These are all the arguments you might be thinking in your head. As long as I, as long as I, even if it's in the, 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 the privacy of my house, as long as I believe in something, as long as I have an affiliation with Jesus, that's fine. And surely, okay, fine, church attendance is plumbing, plummeting, but at least I have to imagine we're still a spiritual nation, right? Wrong. Again, from Gallup polling. So, so now, now this, this is the first statistic is from the year 2000. These are the people that have a religious affiliation. This doesn't necessarily mean that they go to church, but they believe in something. They, they have some type of an affiliation with a religious deity. In the year 2000, only 8% of people had no religious affiliation. That means 92% of people just two decades ago believed in something, had an affiliation with something. Only 8% in 2020 had no religious affiliation. Again, according to Gallup polling, you fast forward two decades to the year 2020, the most recent year the statistics were available, that 8% with no religious affiliation has ballooned to 21% with no religious affiliation. That is almost a 3x increase in 20 years. Staggering amount of people that are now self-identifying is, yeah, I, I don't believe in anything. I don't align or affiliate with uh, anything in that regard. So for those of you that are still poly Pollyanna or poly Pollyanna, whatever you want to be, okay, fine. 
There's not a lot of people that are members of churches. Got it. Not a lot of people that are even identifying as having a religious affiliation. Got it. But don't worry. All is not lost. Let's look at the younger generation. Let's look at the future generation of Christians. Let's look at these young men and women who are going to be coming of age in the next couple of years. They're going to save the Christian faith, right? They're going to fill the pews, right? They're going to lead the charge to bring us back to Christ, right? Wrong. Again, according to Gallup polling, what they did is they broke church membership down by generation. So the two that I want to focus on, these are the younger people in society today. You have Generation X, the Gen Xers. These are people that were born from 1965 to 1980s. I don't know if you classify them as young necessarily, but those are people in their you know, mid forties, maybe getting to about 60. But the one that we really want to focus on the millennials, these are individuals who were born between 1981 and 1996. So these are individuals who are, you know, 25 to 40 ish right about now. These are the people that are entering the workforce. These are the people that are graduating college. These are the people that are starting to get married. These are the people that are starting to have kids. These are literally our future leaders. These are literally the future Christians. The individuals that we're depending upon to keep the faith alive in this country. So let's look at millennials, especially since, again, between that uh, age demographic of 25 to 40, I would say this is the most important one. So in 2010, let's just go back 10 years. I know the previous statistics, we were going back 20 years. Let's just go back 10 years. In 2010, a decade ago, 51% of millennials belong to a church. So these are people that 10 years ago, they're between what, 30 and 15. Now, if they're 15, you know, they're probably going with their parents. You don't have a lot of 15-year-olds that are going to church on their own. That'd be something. But again, between the ages of 15 and 30-ish, 51% of millennials in 2010 belong to a church. Fast forward 10 years to 2020. Again, the, the latest year that these statistics were available, those millennials have decreased from 51% church membership to 36 percent church membership. That is a 15 percentage point decrease in just 10 years. Let's compare those by the other generation. Generation X, 1965 to 1980, year of birth, has gone from 57% to 50%. That's only a I mean again, I, I don't want to I don't want to sugarcoat any decrease. Any decrease is bad. But Generation X has only decreased by 7%. The baby boomers, those who have been born between 1946 and 1964, they've gone from 63% to 58%. That's a 5-percentage point decrease. Traditionalists, those are those who were born between or born before 1946, have seen a decrease of 73% to 66%. That's a 7-point decrease. And I would argue part of that is because these individuals are just dying off faster. But of all of those demographics, traditionalists, baby boomers, Generation X, millennials, we are losing millennials more than twice as fast as any single generation, including the traditionalists, those born before 1946, who are dying at a much faster clip than any other generation. This is horrifying for us, not only presently, but also when it comes to the future of Christianity. So if we go back 
to these millennials. Again, those individuals who were born between 1981 and 1996, 36% of them in 2020 officially belong to a church. That number has got to be lower now. I would hate to see what Gen Z is. I didn't even look that up. Boy, I, I hope we're at least in the double digits with respect to Gen Z. But if we focus on the millennials, that means that three out of five millennials do not belong to a church. That means that three out of five of these young people who are primarily between the ages of uh, 25 and 40 are not actively publicly living out their faith in a church setting. Now, if you are still optimistic, if you are still Pollyanna, if you are still these rose-colored glasses, will you please teach me how you're doing this? Because I, I want to be living life like you, man. I want to be looking at life like you. Now, again, that's not to say that hope is lost, but this is horribly depressing. So if you're still, ah, we got this, we got this, ain't no problem. Again, text me, call me, email me. I need to start looking at life like you do. Because this problem, again, is only going to get worse. Now, again, you could say, well, still no problem. I'm still hanging in there. That still means we got, you know, two or five young people. I got faith that they're going to, you know, turn this thing around pretty quickly. That's certainly my prayer. But part of the reason why I think this problem is going to get much, much, much worse before it gets better is when you look at those three out of five millennials, again, 25 to 40, I know People are having children later on in life now, but this is when people have kids. You don't have nearly as many people having children after the age of 40 as you do between 25 and 40. I don't know the statistics, but I have to imagine it's, what, 10 times as many, 20 times as many, 50 times as many people being born when their parents are between 25 and 40 versus after 40. Why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because these three out of five young people, this is not going to stop with them. Now, God gave us free will. So I'm not saying these people are wrong or these people aren't doing anything correctly or I'm not going to tell them how to live their life. But these three out of five young people, as they're having children, two children, three children, six children in some cases, if these millennials aren't going to church, are their kids going to start going to church on their own? If these millennials aren't reading the Bible every single day, are their kids just automatically all of a sudden going to pick up a Bible? If these three out of five millennials aren't praying, aren't cultivating an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, aren't having a biblical worldview, are their children all of a sudden going to spontaneously start to do that? Now, the answer is always possibly, but the odds are stacked against them. These are going to be kids that grow up without God, that grow up without the Bible, that grow up without prayer, that grow up without an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, could they turn to Christ later on? Sure. But it's going to be a very uphill climb. So what does this mean? This means we're about to fall off of a freaking cliff when it comes to Christianity. If we already have church membership plummeting, if we already have people without a religious affiliation growing exponentially, if we're losing young people, millennials and Gen Zers at a clip never before seen in the history of the world, 
And these young people are just starting to have kids and babies, and those kids and babies have no relationship with Jesus. This problem is going to get way, way, way worse. Will Christianity survive? Will we be able to turn this around? And if we're going to answer that, you need to look in the mirror. I need to look in the mirror. Every single one of my brothers and sisters in Christ need to take a long, hard look in the mirror because what you see and what you decide to do following this podcast will determine whether or not Christianity in this country, in this world, is going to survive. Because for all the little talking that we're doing on our side, for all the little evangelization that we're doing on our side, for all the little discipleship that we're doing on our side, the secular forces in society have determined to do life a little bit differently. When we're quiet, they're loud. When we keep our mouths shut, they're speaking. And as long as we continue to stay silent and they continue to speak, Christianity is going to go the way of the dinosaur. Extinct, bye-bye, outlawed, persecuted at a scale that we haven't even seen before. Because part of the issue is, by us being quiet and us not defining for others what it means to be a Christian— these secular forces have taken control of the societal narrative. They are defining us. They are labeling us. They are telling others about us. And these are people that do not have Christian best interests in mind, to say the least. They have labeled us as intolerant. They have labeled us as bigots. They have labeled us as racists, misogynists, anything else that ends in ist, apparently. They have labeled us as the religion of hate. That's my fault. That's your fault. Because we're not defining ourselves. We're not educating people on who we are. We're not educating people on whose we are. We're not educating people on the tenets on which we stand as a faith. And part of the reason that this is so problematic, it's not even just people don't know what a Christian is or people just have a misconception of what a Christian is. If you have millions and millions and millions of people in a country who are ignorant, who haven't taken the time to learn what a Christian is, and who believe everything that they're spoon-fed by forces that are hostile to Christians, you start to believe what you hear. Yeah, Christians are racists. Yeah, Christians are fascists. Yeah, Christians are intolerant, hate-filled bigots. If you start to associate Christianity with hate, you would protest anything that has to do with Christianity. You start to see a nativity scene at the library 
you're going to raise a fuss. Aha, we got to get that out of here. This is this is hate. You see the Ten Commandments hung up in a courtroom? Oh, whoa, we got to pull those things down. This is the religion of hate. You see in God we trust on a dollar bill? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to lead a protest here because I don't want a, a religion that is so full of hate and vitriol and spite and animosity on my country's currency. So the negative perception of Christianity all over the world is a massive deal because as this false narrative gets fed, as these individuals who have defined us at this way, as that message continues to be amplified, more and more people are going to be outspoken in wanting to remove Christianity. More and more people are going to want to be going outside their normal daily effort to do everything they can to eradicate what they think is a religion of hate and animosity and intolerance and bigotry because that's what they've been taught. Well, who's been teaching them? Forces that are hostile to the Christian faith because something tells me if you were teaching them, they wouldn't be so worked up. If I was teaching them, they wouldn't be so worked up. If wonderful Christian men and women who are in their lives, who they know, who they respect, who they trust, who they admire, if those people were teaching them what it means to be a Christian, I don't think they would be so worked up. Now, we didn't seek this fight. We didn't walk to these secular forces. We didn't go over, at least I know I didn't. We didn't go to these secular forces. We didn't go over to the atheists. We didn't go to the agnostics. We didn't go to these individuals, organizations, entities, societal organizations and say, you know what? We're Christians. You guys suck. Let's throw down right now. We didn't start the fight, but I think you can probably remember back to your grade school days or high school days, or if you were a hockey player or anything like that, whether you started the fight or not, you find yourself in a fight. You've got a choice. Lay down and die. Let the instigator have their way with you. Or fight back. We Christians didn't start this fight. Ever since, boy, even before Jesus arrived on the scene, there's, there's just been such a persecution of certain people of faith, but it really amplified once Jesus arrived on the scene and, and his followers started to grow. I mean, look at what happened to Jesus Christ for crying out loud. The guy was at the time. It's so amazing. You've got these learned leaders. You've got the Sanhedrin. You've got the Pharisees. You've got these really brilliant Jewish minds that were all waiting for the coming of the Messiah. They knew the Torah they knew the book of Moses. They, they had access to the same materials as everybody else. They knew that Jesus was going to be coming. He came and they killed him. So even the most spiritual of people can get all wound up and worked up and, and bent out of shape. Until every last Christian has no breath in their lungs, we still have a shot to turn this back. We still have an opportunity to turn this around. We still can seize the moment, win this world back for Christ by doing our own part day in and day out. 
even if it's just one thing a day that we can do to start to turn this around, hope is not lost until every single Christian on earth is gone. So I know we can turn this around, but we have to act boldly and we have to act quickly. And the thing I got to tell you is that you can probably already understand, it took us a long time to get into this current predicament. So even though we're going to fight back, and I got to tell you, I think you already know what I'm saying, but for those of you that are thinking about grabbing a baseball bat or something, put that away because unlike Antifa, unlike Black Lives Matter, unlike some of these secular terrorist organizations that just want to shout at you and I mean, this trans movement, my goodness, are you seeing some of these things? The people that are getting physically assaulted, the people that are getting beaten, the people that are giving speeches, they were invited by this college or this university and they're getting accosted during the speech. You don't see Christians doing that. They choose to fight back with words. They choose to fight back with hate. They choose to fight back with fists. In regrettably, in the in the realm of the covenant Christian school in Nashville, that person elected to fight back with a gun. We fight back with love. We fight back with grace. We fight back with forgiveness. We fight back with the truth because that is on our side. And that not only is what we have, that's what our heavenly father expects of us. Because unlike what the mass media will tell you, our religion, our belief is rooted in love, forgiveness, grace, and acceptance. And that's what we need to fight back with. But this isn't going to be easy. It's going to be tough for you to do this. It's going to be tough for me to do this. It's going to be tough for all of us to do this. But again, this shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, if as you're going through the Bible, especially the New Testament, the vast majority of the chapters and the books of the New Testament were written by people while they were sitting in jail cells. I just worry deep down that this podcast, this message is going to fall on deaf ears. I worry that it's going to be more and more difficult to wake us up from our slumber, to wake us up from our life of comfort, to wake us up from a me-centric life, my happiness, my comfortability, you know, my, my comfort, my future, my success, my family, as opposed to having a view that looks at all of Christianity, that looks at what we're up against. I'm just, I'm worried that far too many Christians are far too apathetic about this. We're lost in our social media. We're lost in our entertainment. We're lost in our daily grind. We're lost in our busyness. We're lost in our crazy schedule. We're lost in our ability to see beyond ourselves. And many of us aren't going to do anything about this. Part of the reason we don't act is we just don't want people to hate us. I, you know, I want to talk about God. I just don't want to be hated. You know, I, I, I do want to speak up about my faith. I just don't want to 
have people in my life not like me anymore. Well, here's a fact check for you. Don't worry about if they're going to hate you. Just accept that they are going to hate you. Because as it says in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Why are we worried about being hated when the world hated Jesus? They hated Jesus so much that they released a horrific criminal like Barabbas in exchange for Jesus. They hated Jesus so much that during the Passion of the Christ, he was stained, withstood one of the worst beatings that anybody could imagine. They hated Jesus so much. Here is the Messiah. Here is the person that was promised to the Jewish people, and they horrifically murdered him anyway. What makes you so special? What makes me so special that we think we're not going to be hated? We got to get out of this stupid mentality that we got to be liked by everybody. I almost kind of wear it as a badge of honor if the wrong people hate me. Now, I want everybody to come to Christ, okay? So when I say wrong people, it's not like I'm going to deem them as lost and irredeemable and now those people are destined for hell. No, until my last breath, I am going to work hard to make sure that every single person accepts Jesus Christ as their personal savior. But if somebody who is completely immoral, unethical, is an atheist and is going out of his or her way to persecute Christians, I'm, I'm not going to lose sleep if that person hates me. If they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you. Just Accept it. Stop worrying about it. Stop being afraid of it and just know that it's coming. Accept it. John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. We're no greater than Jesus. Jesus was persecuted. You will be persecuted. I will be persecuted. If they listen to Jesus in the first place, if they obey Jesus in the first place, if they follow Jesus in the first place, it would be totally different for us today. But they didn't. Wake up. Accept it. This is this is this is part of the reason why so many people are so quiet. Well, I just don't want people to hate me. I just don't want people to unfriend me on Facebook. Oh, I, you know, I, I just don't want to end up in any arguments. I want everybody to get along. We're never all going to get along. You're trying to avoid something that was never going to happen in the first place. Oh, I just I, I'm never going to leave my house because I don't want to die. You're going to die whether you stay in the house or whether you leave the house. You're going to die. You can't avoid it. If people are going to hate you anyway, they might as well hate you while you're honoring the Great Commission. If people are going to persecute you anyway, they might as well persecute you while you're honoring the Great Commission. Whether you do it or not, they're going to hate you. Whether you do it or not, they're going to persecute you. So we might as well do what God commanded us to do. We might as well do what God wants us to do because they're going to do it anyway. I just wonder. I just wonder where all these Christians are. These, these, these brave men and women of Christ. These people that say they believe what they believe. The, the, these individuals 
that talk a good game in church. They, 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 they talk a good game on social media once in a while. But boy, when, when they have an opportunity to step up, when they have an opportunity to rise to the occasion, when they have an opportunity to defend their faith, they're nowhere to be found. You just got to ask yourself, where do your priorities lie? Because that's what life really comes down to. Life comes down to priorities. As I said before, this is a battle of good and evil. This is a battle of light and dark. Too many of us too often have our priorities elsewhere. Our priorities are in our comfort, our material possessions. Us living an easy life, us living a prosperous life, us being a in a boat with very tranquil waters. We don't want to rock that boat. We don't want to go outside of our comfort zone. We don't want to necessarily open ourselves up to persecution. We don't necessarily want to go against the societal grain. And the reason we do that is it's again, it's about what we want. There is a huge difference between what we want and what God wants. And at the end of the day, when God calls you home, when God calls me home, and we're having that great final exit interview in the sky, we need to take an account of all the things that we did and all the things that we did not do. And I don't know about you, but the thought of trying to explain myself, yeah, God, I didn't really honor the Great Commission because I just, I, I wanted to live a quiet life. You think that's going to go over well? Yeah, God, you know, I... um. I didn't take advantage of all those opportunities to tell people about you because I didn't know where they stood and I just didn't want people I didn't know to be mad at me. Do you think that's going to resonate with him? Do you think he's going to give you a hall pass? Do you think he's going to say, okay, no problem, I understand, I'm going to have mercy on you? There is no repentance from the grave. There is no do-over when you leave your human form. When your body is cremated, when your body is buried six feet underground, that's it. Game over. No do-overs, no take-backs, no reset button. Rather than worshiping God, too many of us are worshiping celebrities. Too many of us are worshiping TikTok videos. Too many of us have our own idols, success, money, fame, fortune, notoriety, six-pack abs, whatever. Where are your priorities right now? And if your priorities are out of whack, I give you credit for at least recognizing that. I'll give you even more credit if you decide to do something about it. So that question becomes, well, what should I do? Matthew chapter 10, verse 27 gives us an excellent answer to that question. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What I whisper in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. I love Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, because this just gives us such a powerful visual image. Imagine you're driving into your neighborhood, you're driving into your cul-de-sac, you're driving into the area where you live after a busy day of work, you're pulling in your driveway and you notice something. The 10 houses that are around yours on the same side of the street, on the opposite side of the street, you notice that all nine of your neighbors are standing on their roofs proclaiming, I love Jesus, God is good. I thank Jesus every day for dying for the salvation of my sins. 
Could you just picture that? Nine of your neighbors, all the houses on your block, they're all on their roofs proclaiming to the heavens how much they love God, how much they love Jesus, how much others will benefit from an intimate relationship with their heavenly father. Could you imagine that? Here's a rhetorical question for you. Do you believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God? Do you believe that the Bible is 100% literally true? Do you believe that there's any room for interpretation in the Bible? And if the answer is yes, yes, and no, then why aren't you proclaiming God from the roofs? Forget proclaiming God from the roofs. I mean, you just you think about that. How, how, how weird would that be? The Bible is telling us to proclaim God's love to all of humanity from the roof of your dwelling. You just said the Bible is 100% literal. You just said the Bible is the infallible word of God. You just said there's no wiggle room. There's no room for interpretation for the Bible. Yet you won't even do a social media post talking about your faith. You won't even say God bless you when somebody sneezes at the office. You won't act on that hunch or act on that thing that God put in the bowel of your being about, you know what? I want to start that prayer group at work. I just don't want to offend people. You know what? I want to start asking the clerk at the grocery store or the woman that checks me out at McDonald's, how can I pray for you? But I, I just don't want to offend them. What, what a disconnect of a life you're living. What, what a disconnect of a life all of us are living as Christians. And this is why we're in this mess. Jesus tells us to proclaim our faith from the roofs, yet we won't even whisper it. Yet we won't even send a text message to a few people. Yet we won't even mention God in a public school situation because we don't want to end up in a bad situation. Part of the reason, and again, this becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like a chicken or an egg situation. Because so many people are quiet, we feel like we're all alone. And a lot of people don't want to start talking about God because they feel like they're all alone. Gosh, this is probably a room of atheists. I'm going to be attacked. Gosh, all my neighbors, none of them believe in God. They're not going to get me. Man, all these kids on my Little League team, their parents likely don't believe in God, so I'm going to be quiet. Because everybody's so silent, we feel alone. And because we feel alone, we don't talk about God. And again, I understand it. I don't agree with it, but I understand it because you've got these lies going around in society today. You've got these fallacies going around in society today. You've got all of these things that are perpetrated by Satan, perpetrated by the evil one to get us to shut our big yappers. You hear all the time you can't mix business and religion. That's a lie. You're told you can't offend people. That's a lie. You're told that you got to meet people where they're at. That's a lie. Now, this, this is not me saying you got to be a jerk. This is not me saying that you got to be a bigot. This is not me saying that you can't be tolerant and that you can't have empathy. But you got to be you. You got to do you. And again, at the end of the day, the number one person that we're accountable to is God. I'm not accountable to my neighbors. I'm not accountable to my coworkers. I'm not accountable to my boss. I'm not accountable to the little league parents. I'm not accountable to anybody other than God. If my boss fires me, I'll get a new job. 
if my if the little league parent gets mad and she pulls her kid from my team, oh well. We think we're being respectful with our silence. We think we're being tolerant with our silence. We think we're being considerate with our silence. Instead, we're being a doormat with our silence. We're being a punching bag with our silence. And probably worst of all, we're being ignored due to our silence. Matthew chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We talked about this at the start of this episode of the podcast. Each day that your feet hit the floor, the battle starts. Even when you're sleeping, the war is still raging. Ours is a battle between good and evil. Ours is a battle between light and darkness. When you know Jesus, you have the light. When you have a close, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus, you have the light. When you're standing on the truth, the Bible, Scripture, you have the light. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. What's the purpose of having a light? The purpose of having a light is to illuminate the entire room. The purpose of having the light is to eradicate the darkness. This is a dark society. Take your light into the workplace. Light it up. Take your light into the community. Light it up. Take your light into the schools. Light it up into government. Light it up into every freaking corner of the world. Light it up. We Christians have the light. We Christians are the lamps that continually put bowls over ourselves. Our purpose is to light up the dark world. Our purpose is to light the path for others. Our purpose is to show other people the way. Yet we're covering our light because we think our light is going to offend somebody, because we think our light is going to bother somebody, because we think our light is not going to be accepted or appreciated by somebody. Now, I do hear this from time to time. This is not me being braggadocious. I honestly don't think that I'm all that talented of a person. But I have heard individuals say, well, Paul, that's easy for you to say. You're charismatic. Paul, that's easy for you to say. You're a good speaker. Paul, that's easy for you to say. You're pretty gosh darn bold. I'm none of those things. I can't do what you do. I can't do what God wants me to do. I can't serve God serve Christianity in this manner. Basically, you don't think you're worthy of this calling. Or maybe you think God made a mistake. I know God wants me to do it. He just doesn't understand I'm not talented. I know God wants me to do it. I'm a nobody. I know God really expects this of me. I just don't think God really knows who I am. I, I couldn't do this. First of all, that's an insult to your creator. But secondly, does that remind you of anybody else in Scripture? 
Does that remind you of anybody else that God tapped on the shoulder, says, yo, I need you to do something for me, and this person fought back saying, I think you picked the wrong guy? Yeah. How about Moses? Talk about a task. God wanted Moses at a ripe old age to go into Egypt and liberate all of his chosen people. Yeah, I'm going to go to Pharaoh and say, what up, dude? You know, all these people that are your slaves, all these people that are helping you build these pyramids, all these people that are really making your economy run. Yeah, let them go. They're coming with me. No wonder Moses fought back. Exodus chapter four, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Basically, not only is this task enormous, but yeah, I'm not a good speaker. I have stage fright. I have this little bit of a speech impediment. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't execute this. Do you think God knew that in advance? Do you think God already knew what made Moses tick? Do you think God already knew Moses's assets and liabilities and all the things that make Moses Moses? I would say so because God created Moses. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, the Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will teach. Sorry, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Basically, I got this, Moses. I gave you everything. Moses, I've made you who you are. Moses, not a problem. I gotcha. But even so, God had a plan B. It's not just who Moses was. It's also who is in Moses's life. In addition to this, Exodus chapter four, verse 14. What about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and he'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. Not only does God know what he gets with you, God has surrounded you with other people that can help you in this cause. Remember this, and please don't ever forget this. God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. He's got you. He will not let you fail. He surrounded you with people that will make sure that you're a success. Far too often, we as Christians, we focus on, am I able to do what God wants me to do? Am I able to quote scripture? Nope, not going to do it. Am I able to explain all the mysteries of the Bible? Nope, not going to do it. Am I able to be really witty and come up with a good comeback on my feet when I'm presented with an argument about why Christianity is fake? Nope, so I'm not going to do it. We get so caught up in whether or not we're able to do what God wants us to do, that we're missing the point from the get-go. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're able. It has everything to do with whether or not you're available. God knows you're not able to convert people. It says that in Scripture. That's the Holy Spirit's job, not ours. If I walked up to a group of seven atheists, I couldn't just snap my fingers and say, okay, guys, you're all believers. I can't do that even if I wanted to. I can't do that even if I tried to. That's not our job, and it comes straight from Scripture. 
Our job is merely to plant seeds. Are you available to talk about God? Are you available to answer questions? Are you available to invite others to church? Are you available to make a social media post or two? And the answer is yes. My 10-year-old son, Kennedy, is available to talk about God. I'm much more articulate than he is. I'm much more intelligent than he is. I have a much deeper understanding of scripture than he does. But it has nothing to do with Abel. He's just as available as I am. He's just as available to answer questions. He's just as available to talk about God. He's just as available to bring others into his orbit. You are just as available as my 10-year-old son. You are just as available as any other Christian on earth. So what are you going to do about this? But please, not only do I need you to say, I'm going to start living boldly and unapologetically for Christ, I need you to say, I'm going to start doing that right here, right now. Because here's some more depressing news. Did you know that 5,000 churches in the United States close every year. 5,000 churches are closing every single year. When these churches close, obviously, where do Christians go to worship? These churches do not offer Christians a place to go. These churches do not play a role in the various communities of which they're a part. And part of the reason that these churches are are going By the wayside, one, church membership is way down. There's just not enough butts in the pews. But the other reason is, and again, this comes from Gallup polling as well, that over the course of the last 50 years, church donations have dropped by a third. These churches cannot financially support themselves. There's just not enough butts in the seats. Without enough butts in the seats, people aren't donating as much to the church. And when the churches do not receive the funds, one, they're either forced to close, two, they're forced to merge, and that creates a conflict. You got all these different church cultures coming together. A lot of people don't like it. They end up leaving. But even for the churches that continue, remember, where do these dollars go? These dollars aren't just going to add new carpeting to the narthex. These dollars aren't just adding some new screens for the windows to keep the sun out when the parishioners are worshiping. You got to understand The church historically has been the central institution of every single city, state, geographic location, and principality. So it's not just the physical church. It's not just the grounds. But when that money is not coming in, that's less dollars for ministry. That's less dollars for volunteerism. That's less dollars for donating to local nonprofits, to soup kitchens, to counseling services for the busted, broken, sinful people that need them. So when butts in the seats go down, donations go down. And when donations go down, you know what goes up? Divorce goes up. Addiction goes up. Suicide goes up. Violence goes up. Broken families go up. And it's such a shame because all of this can be avoided if we would just speak up with more consistency. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world 
and preach the gospel to all creation. Three words that I love about Mark chapter 16, verse 15. First is go. Don't wait for people to come to you. Don't wait for people to ask you questions. Go. Seek them out. Find them. Be proactive. Be a self-starter. Go into the wilderness. Get moving. Go to them. Find them. Seek them. Two, preach. Don't whisper. Don't be quiet. When you think of a preacher, when you listen to a sermon, is it one person with one other person in a quiet corner of the church? No, this is a bold man, a bold woman standing in front of a huge crowd, loudly yelling, charismatically, declaring the good news. So according to Mark chapter 16, verse 15, first, you got to go. Two, you got to preach. And three, all creation. Not just people that believe what you believe, not just people that are safe, not just individuals that you think you're going to get a favorable response to. All creation. Because at the end of the day, we have the truth on our side. That's what we're going to fight back against. And that's what we're going to fight back with. We've got God's word. We've got the truth. We stand on that firm foundation. Love, grace, compassion, empathy. We don't have to make anything up. We don't have to spin a yarn. We have it all. Are you going to lead with it? Are you going to tell others about it? Are you going to shine that light into the darkness? As we get ready to wrap up, now the part becomes, well, okay, hopefully you're in. Hopefully you see this fierce urgency of now. Hopefully you're thinking, okay, maybe I've been a little too quiet over the course of my life. It's time to start turning that around. Well, how do you do it? I just got three really quick tips on how you can start standing on that truth, how you can be bolder for Christ, how you can be unapologetic for Christ. Number one, and this is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, this quote, he had said, go into the world and preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. So tip number one is just let people see God through your actions. Are you emulating love in what you do? Are you showing kindness in how you act? Are you showing empathy in the way that you conduct yourself? Because I want people to look at you and say, there's something different about that person. I want what they have. It's not the riches. It's not a really high, powerful job. They don't have 8 million TikTok subscribers. What is it that they have? Well, what you have is God. You don't even need to talk in some cases. Just preach the gospel through your actions. Number two this goes back to available as opposed to able. Share your why. People love you. People trust you. People respect you. People admire you. People think the world of you. Just tell them why you believe in Jesus Christ. Tell them why you are so passionate about the Lord. Tell them why you choose to follow your heavenly father. And after a while, people are going to start to say, well, that makes sense. I understand that. Wow, thank you for confiding in me. You don't need to explain all the mysteries of the Bible. Just tell them why you believe what you believe. And then lastly, you want to come up with a great way to start a conversation about Christ? Just do a simple word substitution. By substituting these words, they will know 
that you're a believer. Rather than saying the word lucky, I'm lucky to have this job. I'm lucky to be married to my spouse. Instead, use the word blessed. I'm blessed to have this job. I am blessed to be married to my spouse. If you're not a believer, you wouldn't use the word blessed. That's a great way to plant a seed. How about hope? Now, hope as a noun is vitally important. We all need to have hope, but hope as a verb sucks. We don't want to say, I hope you have a good day, because hope that, that, that when you use it as a verb, that's almost like we're helpless beings trapped on the sidelines. Don't hope for anything. Instead, pray for everything. Don't say, I hope you have a good day. Don't say, I hope the surgery goes well. Say, I pray you have a good day. I pray that surgery goes well. If you're not a believer, why would you use the word pray? And then lastly, and we as believers know this, but very few of us say this, if you agree with something somebody says, rather than saying, I agree, or rather than saying, right on, or rather than saying, exactly, why not say, amen? Why not say, hallelujah? Why not say, praise Jesus, if you're feeling a little saucy on that day? But whether it be you preaching the gospel through your actions, you telling everybody that'll listen why you choose to follow Jesus Christ, and you doing a simple word substitution, you are going to be able to start more conversations than you ever thought possible. What are you going to do about it? Because we have to look ourselves in the mirror. These numbers aren't going to change on their own. Society's not all of a sudden just going to wake up. We need to stir that pot. We need to be that light in the darkness. So in conclusion, I want to end where we started. Let's go back to when Peter denied Jesus three times just before the crucifixion. Luke chapter 22, verses 59 through 60. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I hate sharing this piece of scripture because for me, this is the most haunting piece of scripture that I've read. It's not the crucifixion. It's not the passion of the Christ. It's not parts of scripture that, that, that just have, you know, the, the children dying as terrible as that is. It's this one. Because I see me in this, because I see you in this. The thought of Peter, the rock upon which Jesus built the church, basically Jesus's best friend, locking eyes with Jesus after he just denied him three times. I can't imagine being Peter in that instance. Can you? Just the look on Jesus's face, what, what, with those eyes, almost, I told you so, maybe, thanks, Peter, maybe, after all that, that's what you're going to say? That haunts me, and I pray it haunts you too. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed in the sense that 
despite having years of anxiety, years of depression, years of struggles mentally, I, I can prominently say right now, there's really nothing that I'm afraid of. I'm not on any kind of anxiety medication anymore. I'm not afraid of public speaking. I'm not afraid of snakes, spiders, anything like that. The only thing that I believe comes close to that is again, I've got three small children. My, my boys are 10 and eight and my baby girl is five. And the thing that comes close to that, let's imagine society continues on this downward spiral. Let's imagine hard to believe 10 years, 15 years from now, we're in an even worse place than we are now. And my children who are much older at that time, look at me square in the eye and say, dad, what did you do about this when you had the opportunity? What did you do to prevent this when you had the chance to do it? And if I don't have an answer for them, that is going to haunt my dreams. Because at some point you are going to lock eyes with Jesus Christ, just like Peter did. At some point, I am going to lock eyes with Jesus, just as Peter did. And while there's still breath in our lungs, we can determine what kind of an experience is that going to be. Are we going to see Jesus with the same eyes that Peter saw him? Oh, thanks. Oh, thanks for denying me. After all I've done for you, that's what you did? Or are we going to lock eyes with Jesus? and see those creases at the side of his eyes because his smile is so big, so wide. His arms are outstretched, and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome home. Speaking only for myself, I choose the latter, not the former. Will you join me in covering the world in Christ? Will you join me in being a bold and unapologetic follower of Jesus Christ, even if it's just sharing this podcast, even if it's just inviting one person to church, even if it's just doing one social media post, will you join me in covering the world in Christ? Because we need to act soon and we need to go big. Before we take a uh, quick break, one of the people that has joined me in this effort to cover the world in Christ is Tom Feldhusen. Tom Feldhusen is an executive advisor. I've been a client of Tom Feldhusen now for several years, and I didn't know what I was doing as a business owner. All I knew was I was good at selling, I was good with people, and I had a lot of energy. Well, that's fine, that's good, but gosh, if you don't have a strategic plan for your business, if you don't have the right people, if you're not meeting your people where they're at, if you're not giving your people enough resources to be successful, you won't be successful. And Tom Feld, who's an executive advisor, was the best business decision I ever made. And I know he would be the best for you also. Why don't you give him a quick call? You can reach him at 262-305-2502. He can help you put together a business plan. He can help you make sure you got the right people in the right spots doing the right things. But whatever you do, do something. Even if he's not a fit, just reach out and see what he can do for you and your business. 262-305-2502. Tom Feldhusen, Executive Advisor. We'll be right back with some closing thoughts. Don't go anywhere. Okay, real quick close, because that was kind of a long uh, body. Here we go. Three, two, one. Well, as we get ready to say goodbye here on another edition of the C-Suite for Christ podcast, just want to say thank you to you 
for listening. I know this is not necessarily some easy content to absorb. I know it's tough to listen to some pretty bad statistics. But as I said, we are in a bad spot with respect to, uh, to Christianity in this country, with respect to Christianity all over the world. But we've been in tough spots before. All it takes is a couple of bold men and women, a couple of unapologetic men and women who are going to plant their flag, who are going to say, I'm done apologizing, and I'm going to do my part to cover the world in Christ. Are you going to make yourself available to honor the Great Commission? And that's my prayer. And one way that you can do that is by getting more involved in the C-Suite for Christ ministry. Go to our website to learn more at csuiteforchrist.com. Become an official member. We'd love to plug you in. There's a lot of benefits that come to our members. We've got a number of chapters all over the world. See where there's a chapter near you. If you're looking and saying, whoa, there's not a chapter where I am, well, Maybe God is calling you to become a C-Suite for Christ licensee and plant a chapter. Boy, I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. Whatever you do, do something, because we're better together, we're stronger together, and we'll cover the world in Christ together. Again, csuiteforchrist.com. I love you, and that's not me just saying that. I, I, I do. I love your belief. I love your time. I love being in the foxhole with you. And I can't wait to see you back here for the next episode of the C-Suite for Christ podcast. We'll see you next time. God bless. Are you a Christian-based organization? Well, so are we, and we're here to serve you. We want to help you with your mission, so please visit paragonmarketinggroup.com to see how we can help. Need a trade show display? A lobby renovation? Heck, how about help with an event that you're hosting? Captivate Exhibits can do it all. Plus, they're an outspoken faith-based organization that puts Christ first in all that they do. Ready to captivate the attention of the masses? Then check them out today at CaptivateExhibits.com. That's CaptivateExhibits.com. Thank you for joining us on the C-Suite for Christ podcast. People everywhere are thirsting for Christ. Our goal is to cover the world in Christ using hope, encouragement, and God's nourishing words. We hope you'll join us. Please visit csuiteforchrist.com and come back soon for more conversations centered around God's endless love for us all. I saw you in my dreams before I came here. I will keep you in my dreams when I leave here. You're like one of a kind And my eyes light up when I think about you I won't forget you Life goes on and on